welcome to When Belief Dies, a podcast honestly reflecting on faith, religion, and life. Hey, listen, I want to ask you to do two things. The first one is, would you go over to Apple Podcasts, search for When Belief Dies, and leave us a five-star rating and review? Every rating and review on Apple Podcasts helps to boost the visibility, and we want listeners like you to be able to find this show. The second thing is, would you consider supporting this show on Patreon? This show will always be an ad-free place, but your support on Patreon will enable us to do more and more over the coming years. So have a think, and if you can, support the show. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy this episode. Hello, and welcome to another episode of When Belief Dies. My name's Sam, and today I'm joined by Dan Barker. Dan, it's great to have you on the show. Hi, thank you for inviting me. So I've obviously heard a lot about you and I've seen you on so many shows. For instance, just the other day you were on uh, Capturing Christianity with, with Randall Rouser. Um, and you're definitely someone that, um, that stands out within the atheist community. Um, I just thought, Dan, for, for the listeners, whether you'd be able to give us just kind of like a couple of minutes of like a rundown of, of who you are, the sort of um, ministry you were in and, and where you find yourself now. Well, right now I am currently co-president with my wife, Annie Laurie Gaylor, of the Freedom From Religion Foundation, an American state church separation group that uh, works to keep religion and government separate. And we also educate the public about the views of non-believers. That's atheists, agnostics, secular humanists, uh, whatever label. We don't care what the label is. In fact, a lot of religious people join our group, liberal believers, Jews in that, because they also agree that religion and government should be separate. So... But I wasn't always that way. Before then, uh, years ago, I was a, a Christian minister, an evangelical preacher, born and raised in the faith, uh, accepted Jesus as my Savior when I was a young teenager, and uh, accepted what I was convinced was a call to the ministry when I was 15. I started preaching when I was 15, and successfully, I might say, I, I found there was a real hunger for for the gospel. And uh, then I went to a, a religious college, a liberal arts college called Azusa Pacific, got a degree in religion and what amounts to uh, perhaps a minor in New Testament Greek. Uh, I didn't I didn't become a great scholar. I was a preacher. I wanted to go out and win souls and I knew enough to preach and I was an associate pastor of three different churches in California. Wow. I was a missionary to Mexico for a couple of years. I uh, was a traveling evangelist for about eight years traveling the country, thinking Jesus was coming any minute and I needed to win souls. You know, I was that kind of a guy. In the foreword to my book, Godless, which tells my story, Richard Dawkins wrote, Dan wasn't just a preacher. He's the kind of preacher you would not want to sit next to on a bus. Because <laughs> <laughs> I was always that. I was, I was just a positive, happy, you need to know Jesus kind of guy, you know. And uh, very rarely did, did I receive any pushback. I mean, most people are pretty respectful when they think somebody's a, a clergy I was ordained in the ministry. I was um, an associate pastor. I was a Christian songwriter for uh, a number of years uh, with Word Records and Mana Music and some others. And in fact, I'm still getting royalties today, Wow! three or four decades later, uh, from some of that stuff. It's not selling great anymore, because that was back in the 70s. But I still get a check every once in a while. Uh, and then I, I, I donated to charity, so there's no like conflict of interest. Uh, nice. You know? Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> um, and uh, then uh, when I was in my early 30s, I changed my mind. And that's basically um, a long story all to itself. 
Yeah, I mean, um, I know that you've you've spoken at, at length and obviously written your book about it, but kind of what what is it what is it then about Christianity that kind of made you begin to start asking these questions, and then what what was that kind of final straw that almost broke the camel's back? If you don't mind just sharing that for for the, for the listener. Yeah, so there was no final straw. It would be like asking you, uh, when did you grow up? You, you could probably point to a general period in your life, but there wasn't one moment where a minute before you weren't and a minute after you were. It was a, For me, it was a process. I do know some people, though. I know some former clergy. In fact, there's more than a thousand former clergy in the clergy project right now. And a few of them say it was immediate. It was like bang overnight, which to me seems kind of weird. I would think you'd want to be kind of sure before you yeah. make a decision like that. Uh, some of them say it was reading the Bible. And for me, as an evangelical fundamentalist type, uh, I know not all Christians are the same, so there's a danger of painting them all with the same brush. But I was this fundamentalist type where the Bible was preeminent. The, the Word of God was actually it. Uh, and like Paul said, if Christ be not risen, our faith is in vain, uh, so the resurrection of Jesus. So for me, it was the Bible. Um, philosophy came later, uh, you know, the arguments for and against the existence of God, which there's about eight or eight or 12 of those. <clears throat> and I've done a bunch of debates since then, too, more than, a, I think I've done 137 public, formal public moderated debates since 1985. Wow. But, uh, you know, I didn't just change my mind one night and go, oh, the Bible's wrong, it's unreliable, it's not true. It was just some questions that all Christians have. You know, all Christians are moving and shifting positions, and there's all these different denominations, and there's all this, you know, people's theology kind of migrates, and you think, oh, good, I'm getting more subtle, I'm becoming more sophisticated. And so that happened to me as an as a extremist, fundamentalist type, Bible literalist, where I started moderating within Christianity. It wasn't like I jumped from Bible preacher to atheist in one night. Mm. It was about a four or five years. And I remember some of the early questions I had, and I wouldn't call them even doubts, because, you know, all Christians have questions, you know. Uh, one of them was Adam and Eve. And, you know, was Adam and Eve a, a true story? Were they actual people? Were there two actual human beings called Adam and Eve? Which I used to believe, but I found other Christians especially when I started traveling with my music. My music started getting popular. So I got invitations to churches where, that were not exactly as fundamentalist as mine. So I, I talked with dozens, maybe hundreds of pastors all over the country uh, about their views and that. <clears throat> and some of them were saying, well, Adam and Eve, um, you know, we now know from science that there could not have been a first man and a first woman. And so the Israelites were really talking about Adam and Eve more in a metaphorical way rather than a literal historical way. We don't have to think. And they didn't even think anyone would take it to be literal. It was a story. Hmm. Just like when Jesus told the parable of the prodigal son, for example. He didn't intend the listeners to think there was an actual prodigal son. He was making up the story or passing on a story that was that was trying to teach an important moral tale, regardless of the historicity of the actual characters in that story. And so one of these pastors told me, that's how a lot of us think about Adam and Eve. What's important is the tale, the story, the moral of it. It's not that there was an actual snake talking in actual language. It wouldn't have been Hebrew. Hmm. Would, that was long before Hebrew. It would have been some, what language was the snake talking, by the way? And what language were Adam and Eve speaking? 
at the time. Later, the Hebrews wrote it down in their language. The Israelites wrote it down in Hebrew. So it was questions like that. And I got to thinking after about four or five years to make a really oversimplified explanation here that at the end of that period when I became much more moderate and much more liberal, that I was thinking, well, okay, so we have this Bible and the prodigal son is a story that's not true, but that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter that it wasn't true. Jesus wasn't pretending that it was true. Then we have Adam and Eve, which we know from science couldn't have existed. And even if they did, even if Adam and Eve did exist, they wouldn't have come out of the Middle East. They would have come out of Africa. So we know there's something funky about the story. And so if those are just stories that the writers were making up with good intentions, then whether, what other parts of the Bible are just stories? Maybe even Yahweh <laughs> is just a huge figure of speech. Maybe that is also just one of these big stories that was not supposed to be literal. It was just a way to give meaning to our, to our lives and all that. So, and then I realized, well, some people are going to take it literal, some are not. Some are going to pick and choose. And, of course, the liberal believers... I uh, think most of it is just uh, allegorical, metaphorical, maybe some hyperbole in that. <clears throat> and um, as an atheist who criticizes the Bible, I sometimes get accused of being a fundamentalist atheist because I'm taking the Bible at face value mm. rather than having the <clears throat> supposed subtlety to understand it in its deeper contextual way, you know. So that's a long story short. I found myself at the end of that four or five years uh, you know, I, what I say is I dumped out all the bathwater and I found out, hey, there's no baby there. If you just keep, you know, dumping out that which you realize isn't actually true and, and could be interpreted, then what is there? Where do you draw the line? Who gets to decide where you draw the line? And of course, every Christian and every preacher thinks they know exactly where to do it because if you follow the Bible. And so I lost, I didn't really lose faith. I threw away my faith. Um, in the reliability of the Bible, the history of the Bible, the science of it, the even the morality. The Bible is, turns out to be not a very good <clears throat> moral guide. Uh, there are, of course, there's, of course, there's good things in the Bible. There's good things in the Quran. There's good things in the Bhagavad Gita. I mean, there's good things in all religious holy books, so-called holy books. And so, um, it'd be surprising if there weren't after so many centuries and so many authors. But on balance, if you take the whole thing on balance turns out that it's not a very good moral guide or guide for truth at all. So I, the Bible was my path toward atheism. Later, the philosophical arguments followed when I started thinking first cause and design and cosmology and the ontological and all that stuff, which, uh, you know, which is a totally different issue. Yeah, that's really helpful. I think this is, this is definitely sounding very similar to my own experience, which was that, that, um, realization that you've questioned so much and you've got to the position that you actually not only does god not exist but the god you believed in doesn't exist so you know anyone could have this idea of, of this great grand god um and we kind of worship that but actually if if you strip, strip it back enough you realize that you believe in this very personal god that is actually just very unique to you so that even the people within within your church say that say say you're in a church you're worshiping together like no one in that church is going to believe exactly the same as the person next to them you're all actually worshiping a slight variation upon god and and, and that realization that you've lost that is um is is quite stark and quite scary i guess um i mean for me the kind of the kind of ball started then then rolling into well without god how do i have morality and how do i have reason and purpose and, and all those sorts of things how did you how did you go about kind of um diving into those sorts of questions once you'd stepped outside of the religious framework 
Yeah, uh, and because then then you really do have to confront those questions. A lot of believers don't. They're just happy with their faith, and they leave the uh, they leave the heavy lifting to their theologians or apologists or scholars. Uh, and so I thought, well, if I'm going to own this, I better own it, and I better start thinking about it. And so, of course, the philosophy followed, and morality is a big deal. And I think morality might be the biggest issue with most believers, because we, the idea is that if you don't have this authority, this Lord, this master, these commandments, whatever you call it, uh, over you, and if you don't have some reasons like a promise of heaven or the threat of hell or just the love for your creator, then what's going to make you be good? The assumption there, and not all Christians make this assumption, but uh, enough of them do, and the Bible does too, the assumption is that we are depraved. Mm. We are limited. We human beings are not capable of understanding and grasping and figuring things out, that we do need a Father, a mm. Lord, a Spirit to, to teach us. <clears throat> and so um, I wrote a whole book then that came out two or three years ago called Mere Morality. And you probably know what that title is a take of, uh, C.S. Lewis, Mere Christianity, <clears throat> in which um, I pretty much showed that uh, not only are there a number, and I, I picked my own, but there's a number of plausible, natural, moral philosophies uh, to, to be a good person, to be moral. But even if the Christian Bible and the Christian God were true, that's a bad moral philosophy. It's an evil one. Even if there is, even if that God did exist, on moral grounds, we ought to reject and denounce that God for being an, an immoral creature. And I had a book then close to the same year, come out called God, the Most Unpleasant Character in All Fiction, which, by the way, Richard Dawkins asked me to write hmm. because he wanted to defend his own criticisms of the Bible. And he suggested that each of the um, characteristics become a chapter of its own. That was a fun book to write. Yeah. Showing that, you know, any thinking, kind, moral, rational, loving person, I think has a moral duty to denounce that monster. That is not the way to be good. And what you're left with, I think what a lot of believers are left with is, well, I'm still going to believe because I don't want to be punished. I'm afraid of hell. I'm afraid of eternal judgment. And there's something in our brains that makes us afraid of that kind of thinking. And my next book, I'm not going to give you my answer, but, but in my next book, it's called The End of Worship that I'm working on right now. I, th I think I have a unique answer to why we evolved like that. Not just to believe. There's, there's a whole bunch of books out on why we believe. But why do we worship? Hmm. What is it in our brains that makes us think that worshiping a monarch is a good thing? Where did that come from? It had to come from somewhere. And I think there is a solid, at least plausible, if not proved, natural explanation for that adaptive instincts that we have. really helpful i'm looking forward to reading that book now um okay i think what one of the things that christians often respond to when people talk about this sort of thing i kind of throw it to you to kind of like mull over and share your thoughts with is this idea that um you might be able to say that the god of the bible um is um depraved and we shouldn't worship him but um what rights do 
we have as non-believers to um, ground and base a any sort of moral uh, this is right and this is wrong because surely you know if the big bang was just happenstance and evolution is just happenstance and it's all just kind of um, pretense and nothing's actually grounded on anything so kind of how do you then deal with those sorts of those sorts of questions when christians kind of push back on that yeah well i would say the only reason we're talking about things like right and wrong and we're using words like good and evil, or words like morality. The only reason we're doing that, morality is not a thing that exists out in the cosmos somewhere. It's something that we are then using to explain. Uh, the, the reason that we talk about it is because I think morality boils down to just one simple word, and that's the word harm. We, we want to live in a world that has the least amount of harm or threat or whatever synonyms you want to use. Uh, and if a person is acting with the intention of increasing harm, maximizing or increasing harm, we would say, well, that's bad, not because there's some cosmic thing up there about it. It's just because by nature, we recoil from harm. We can't survive. We can't flourish when there's harm in our lives. And harm can be a number of things. You can make a huge list of hunger or thirst or a lack of shelter or disease or predation or natural disasters or, or inequality, whatever, make a list of these things. Your list is going to end up being items that are all natural things, natural, physical, not just pain. Because if you have a moral philosophy that says you should avoid causing pain to people, well, then you there would be no problem with shooting somebody in the head while they're asleep. They won't feel any pain, right? The pain isn't the issue, and suffering isn't even the issue. Whereas, you know, in the book of Job and a lot of uh, theosophy, a lot of uh, theological moral questions have to deal with suffering, the real issue is harm. Are we going to harm? If I'm acting with the intention of minimizing harm, real harm in the real world, then by definition, I am acting good. I'm doing a good thing. If I'm acting with the intention of increasing harm, then by definition, I am bad. So, um, it's not because I'm afraid I'm going to be punished. I mean, that's kind of an anti-morality. If you think you should be good because you want to go to heaven or you want to avoid hell, then you're not really being moral for the sake of morality. You're not really loving humans because you love humans. You're doing it because you don't want to get punished, which is not really a morality at all. That's just that's the Nuremberg defense. I'm just doing whatever my master told me to do. Yeah, and that kind of falls into this idea that we as humans um, desire the ability to, um, I guess, have this thing that is above us that is helping us to function from. And I think kind of people like um, Yul Noah Harari and other people talk about this fairly well. I'm sure there's, there's better authors out there who talk about this sort of idea that um, as as a collective, as a group, we kind of need to have um, often something that, that we can all focus on. Like this, he kind of talks about this shared narrative, this idea of a story that we can um, all go, okay, well, we're going to believe this, not necessarily because it's true, but because it gives us this group definition and purpose and drive. And together, we're, we're obviously stronger than we are separate. So therefore, we kind of, we kind of create these sorts of um ideas cultures gods i mean you can look at buddhism which is older than christianity and go well, that isn't really a, a religion it's more of a um well i guess you could call it a religion but it's, it's not necessarily attributed to a god as we would know within the kind of judo christian framework so it's just a really interesting idea that humans desire need crave that sort of thing thing above them that they can adhere to um do you do you kind of think that that sort of morality harm ethic that you bring forwards is that sort of 
bigger than humanity picture that we all work from or do you think that kind of comes through humanity or is subhumanity like where 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 do, where do we draw that from well i think it works for both the individual and society because you're right we are social animals we evolved to be social animals from ancestors who we can be pretty sure had parallel instincts to the other primates who have like the alpha male in this hierarchical structure where there's there's this one leader on the top who controls the territory and the females and the resources and if you want to get anything you have to kind of reach up and bow down to this leader uh, and um, so as social animals of course we have we're tribal so there's good and there's bad to that because as tribal animals we develop this love your neighbor as yourself kind of thing but even in the Old Testament, that loving your neighbor as yourself only applied to your Hebrew neighbor. It didn't apply to the external neighbors. So tribalism is wonderful for the cohesion within the tribe. Mm. We, you know, you know, I, I I play piano in a lot of musical groups, and sometimes I play for these uh, bar mitzvahs and bat mitzvahs and uh, Jewish ceremonies. And it's beautiful to see the community that they have. You can see this love and the sharing that they all have. But it's within their community. In the Old Testament, in the early Israelites, they loved each other, but they didn't have any love for their neighbors. So this tribal mentality can actually lead to immense violence to the out-group. Hmm. If you're in the in-group, of course, you're all going to love each other, and all groups are like that. I remember as a Christian thinking, you know, I have this instant community all over the world. I can just go visit with another Christian, and it happened. When I was a traveling evangelist, I would go into these homes of people I had never met before, but were Christians. Therefore, we're in the same family, and we care for each other, and we love each other. There's something in our brains that wants to link us to our own, even if they're not genetically or even geographically related to us. There's something in us that wants to have our own protection. So tribalism goes both ways, and you know the, the holy wars and the, the violences, and of course the Old Testament is filled with that, with uh, killing off and the genocides of all the uh, neighboring tribes, or the, even the tribes within Canaan. So... Uh, so yeah, and and obviously, and maybe this is oversimplifying and not always true, but I think we can look for adaptive explanations for the way we our brains work as individuals and our brains work as social animals uh, within sort of a hierarchical structure that our species, you know, is born with. We we found ourselves with that. We didn't create it. We happen to be following this sort of template of our ancestor species that came before us. Yeah, that's completely fair. And I guess I kind of obviously um, there's a lot of sort of um, Darwinian evolution sort of coming through in what you're saying, which I very much um, agree with. Um, and I find it very interesting that, um, you know, even just kind of just to talk about my story very briefly, um, it was kind of this idea of evolution that really began to make the thread unravel for me within Christianity is is this whole idea of um, of, I guess, the problem of evil, um, you, you, you'd say is kind of this idea that um, if evolution is true, then that means that there's been billions of years of death, decay, horror, famine, drought, all these sorts of things that have wiped loads and loads of different species out, all for gods to bring about humans. And it just feels very, um, well, wrong, essentially. And I guess, you know, what makes humans so special that we think we are the pinnacle of this sort of creation um, that obviously isn't isn't a real thing. Um, and so, yeah, that, that for me, this idea of evil and or the problem of suffering or pain or whatever you want to use um, really drew it apart for me. And... I guess kind of drawing it back then to um, you're talking there about this sort of Israelites entering Canaan and the sorts of, um, 
abhorrent things that was commanded of them to do, like literally to go in and to murder, pillage, take women, cut the babies out of pregnant ladies, all these sorts of things, which is just absolutely horrific. Um, when when It's been interesting to hear kind of your thoughts on this. When you were a Christian and you were kind of reading over these passages and so we did the Bible in the year and all that sort of stuff, like what, what were... What was going through your head at that time um, and what sort of kind of, what was that domino that fell that began to make you see it in a different light? Because I think, I think a lot of Christians probably read those passages and as you were saying with um, uh, with Randall Rouser and you were saying just then, you kind of, everyone comes to it with their own narrative. Um, so what, what were you thinking then and what was it that made those dominoes start to fall so you saw those passages in, in, in the light um, of reality, I guess? Yeah, well, that's part of the problem is that we bring our interpretations uh, a lot of not just preconceptions but required biases uh if if it if it is required that god be good and god be perfect then there's no way that you're going to see bad or imperfection because it's a requirement of your theology and your faith that god is good so you cannot actually see the badness of god and that's what happens i think with a lot of believers and that's what happened with me is that i could not you don't even if you even bother to read the Bible. Most most Christians don't really read that much of it. So, the, um, the there's a lot of theodicies. I'm sure you know. There's a whole bunch of them. Uh, maybe a half dozen kind of popular um, apologetic responses to the problem of evil. Character building is one. John Hicks's idea, and then there's others. The one that I would have had back then, which is doesn't mean it's the best, but I think it, it worked for me was this idea that uh, if we can't show that God did not have a morally sufficient reason for what it was doing, then we cannot accuse him of evil. And when a, a simple example would be like, I think we all agree that we should not take a needle and poke it into a baby. The baby's going to cry, the baby's going to hurt. Unless that baby needs a life-saving injection then we will take a needle and we will poke it into the baby. The baby won't like it. The baby's going to cry. You're hurting the baby. The baby's not going to understand, but you're doing it for a good reason. So there are horrible, what looked like to us, horrible, painful, unnecessary Bible passages of God doing these things. Well, in my mind, God was sticking the needle in the baby. We are too limited to understand why God is doing what he's doing but he has a good reason, a morally sufficient reason for committing the genocide, for example, of these Canaanite towns or for, um, you know, for dashing babies against stones or whatever, whatever passage, ugly passage you want to look at. And who are we to say, like that little baby that's getting a shot, should the baby demand that the parents not poke the needle into it? Because the parents know that this is actually good for the baby, even though the baby doesn't. So that was kind of my thinking, was, well, who am I to judge God? God must have a good reason for why he's doing what looks to me like horrible stuff. But when we get to heaven, there's an old hymn, I don't know if you know it, uh, we'll understand it all by and by when we get to heaven. You know, we don't understand it now. Mm. We see through a glass darkly, as uh, Paul said, but then we will see face to face. And then we'll be able to sit back and go, oh, I get it, God. I Now I know why you were doing that stuff, right? So that's kind of my, my thinking. However, uh, at least one adult can explain to another adult why, uh, and you can explain to that baby later when they grow up why you did that. There was a good reason for that. So it's, it's sort of begging the question to simply assume in advance that God actually does have a good reason for what he did. Because what if he doesn't? What if God is evil? 
who are we to judge? We, you know, we like to say God is good, but who, who are we to judge? So in the absence of a, a plus or minus uh, moral justification for his actions, those of us with brains that are reasoning to the best of our ability, maybe not perfectly, but we're doing our best, we can judge that action as morally bad, especially when we see that there are alternatives to that action. If I'm wrong, well, I'd like to be shown that I'm wrong. But for now, I'm going to use my judgment and say, those actions and those words of this God of the Bible are actually immoral and bad things that should not be ad- admired, much less worshipped. Super helpful. I think I this is such a big thing for me is is this idea that as as people we we don't read these sorts of passages and then stop and go. Well, what if that happened to my family? Like, what if? So I live in Halifax. Um, what if God commanded um, people from Bradford, which is the neighbouring city, to come into Halifax and to kill everyone, to dash the babies against the stones? And would would I just go? Oh, it's okay. God's in control. He's told them to do that. That's fine. Um, of course, I wouldn't. And so I, I just find it really strange that we then think that it's okay that that these people did these things to these children and these people then. Um, and as we kind of talked about, you know, the sort of Canaanites are um, spoken very negatively about in the Bible, but actually kind of archaeology and actual evidence goes to show that actually they were quite peaceful um, settlements and different areas there. And they weren't anything like the sorts of barbaric people that we hear about. Sure, some there were some people that did some pretty, pretty bad things in the area, but not the whole group of people that needed to be wiped out. And then you had different sorts of people who kind of try and explain away these sorts of things. So one that I've heard, which I find quite interesting, is this idea that um, it's almost like the Bible's written um, as as it would be if there was a group of um, lads in a locker room after a basketball game. So you had a basketball game, you go, oh, we absolutely defeated them, we crushed them, we destroyed them, they're all done now. And then, you know, two two chapters later in the Bible, um, the Canaanites are back or whoever's back. And, you know, actually, you know, two chapters ago, it said that they were completely wiped out. This idea of sort of like locker room banter, I guess, um, which is quite quite an interesting one. But then we're kind of of bending ourselves into a pretzel to try and make sense of this text rather than be able to come to the text and allow God's word to speak truth to us. We're having to go, well, that can't be right. And that's not quite correct. And this this doesn't make sense. This doesn't line up with this God that I've been worshipping and told is all loving, all powerful and real and died for me and loves me and knows me personally and wants uh, wants my life to be a, a mirror of him into the world like these these things don't match up and it just takes an amazing amount of efforts to help people to start to see these things in a different light um yeah i don't know if you've got any thoughts on that well uh i think you said you watched or listened to that um exchange i had with randall rouser yeah um, yeah i did recently like a few weeks ago um and I asked him, and I even asked the, the moderator, the hosts of that show, what you would say if you were the Israelite warrior, commanded of God to go in and exterminate this peaceful tribe. In fact, there are some verses that say specifically, uh, like Lachish, or however you say that, was a peaceful people. And they, the Danites, or one of the tribes of Israel, needed a place to stay, so God allowed them to go in and kill them all. Yeah. And so if you were this warrior of God, onward Christian soldiers or onward (laughs) Israelite soldiers, and you were commanded to uh, wipe out everything, leave nothing alive that breathes. And we know this wasn't just hyperbole or or locker room talk because Saul was dethroned because he failed to kill every single living thing. So we do know that that actually meant that literally. And, uh, And then David, who was a man after God's own heart, uh, came along, and Saul killed his thousands, but David killed his ten thousands. So we know that violence and killing was a big part of it. 
So if you were that soldier with a sword going in to, to kill these people, and here's a woman who's pregnant, and you're about to cut her head off or stab her through the belly after she's seen her relatives, her father and her family all killed too, you're just about to, to kill this young woman. And do you, would you stop and say to her, by the way, what I'm doing is an act of mercy and God's love. And you have to look at the whole moral arc of history and realize that centuries from now, in another time, there's going to be a baby born named Jesus. And then all the love of God will be fulfilled through Jesus. So I want you to know that what I'm doing to you right now is a loving thing. Praise God. I don't understand it, but when I get to heaven, you won't, of course, but when I get to heaven, <laughs> God's going to explain it to me. And so you should be happy what I'm doing. What would you say to that woman if you were that Israelite soldier? And Randall, and during this debate, did not answer it. Neither did the host of this actually answer that question. Because I think, and even he admitted, and I think I would have admitted back when I was a believer, that, well, God is good. That's a requirement. That's just a, that just has to be. And God is perfect. So uh, that, we, that Israelite soldier with the sword should be praised for what he was doing. He was following God's order, just like Saul should have completely finished the complete genocide instead of saving some of those animals alive. Um, so I, I think you're right. that it, it's, a, it's our attitude that we bring to it that makes us see it one way or another. It's just super challenging to to read it now. I remember, you know, soon after I I stepped away from Christianity, I still tried to do the Bible in a year, um, and I just got to the just got to the flood. And obviously, I, I don't think the flood actually happened, but it it was this idea. I think this guy called Pine Creek, who's also um, who's who's this YouTuber that kind of does sorts of um, exegesis of um, sorts of conversations and debates and stuff. Anyway, he was saying um, this idea that you know children who get drowned it, it takes a good few minutes for a child to drown like it isn't it isn't a quick thing and for this idea that a, an, an all-loving all-powerful god decided that it was okay to then go and drown children so that you know only noah and his family can survive rather than just kind of this idea of poofing them out of the existence or just like clicking his fingers and his children are gone all these people are gone and god can restart but he needs to use water and this idea of drowning and these slow horrible deaths to bring about his purposes i just it's just and this is the you know, this feeds back into this 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 idea of of evolution it's the method that god has brought about his pinnacle his purpose his plan that then leaves me in question whether this is this is a good god and all loving god and obviously my answer is this this god isn't real that, that people are talking about um yeah uh, that's just a little spiel i guess um well it wasn't just the little children it was all living thing every living thing it was yeah. it was kitty cats and butterflies and yeah i mean it was all anything that was created that was supposedly good was was drowned but you can understand um there there were some huge floods back then in fact in mesopotamia which was probably the birth of civilization and the origin of the cities that we have and kingdoms and all that. In Mesopotamia, there were some horrendous floods, regional floods, obviously, that wiped out entire cities and entire people. Uh, although during some of these horrible floods, there were towns a few miles away that were not even bothered. But you could see how the local people of a certain civilization would have carried through this flood myth. And the earliest flood story we have, of course, is Gilgamesh, which has a lot of parallels to the Noah story, too. So that 
kind of a flood template was going around, uh, not just there, but all over the world. It would be Native American tribes even before then who would have experienced, especially on the uh, West Coast, with some of the tsunamis coming in from the you know leading edge of that Pacific plate, uh, um, American plate pushing out. So there would be flood narratives and myths all through history, and uh, in, in including especially there in Mesopotamia, which was this you know, regularly flooded area between the rivers, which made it a very, uh, very good place actually for agriculture because of all that flood and sediment that was going on, mm. which is a good reason why that was sort of the origin of what we what we call, maybe it's a wrong word, but, but what we, we call civilization through agriculture and cities. It's really interesting. Um, this guy called, called Brett Weinstein, who um, talks about this idea of this kind of like religion being a useful fiction and i'll kind of come back to that in a second but the sort of sort of example that he gives is this one where um there's this group of people and forgive me i forget who they are and i forget where the tsunami happened but but essentially um this tsunami took place where all the water got dragged out basically for a good mile or so all these fish flopping about on the on the sand and all these people walk out basically but this 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 group of people knew that when the sea recalled it, it meant that this this sort of sea god was going to devastate the lands so they all went up this this big hill and obviously we know that when the sea comes back and it's going to come back in as as a, as a tidal wave now that we've kind of researched and stuff but basically this this massive tidal wave then 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 came in and the tsunami came in and it just kind of killed all these people um, but this group of people because of their belief in the sea god when the sea goes out the sea god acts um they survived um and obviously this is there's this idea that kind of religion although it might not necessarily be literally true is kind of metaphorically helpful useful to some extent i mean when you kind of look at the bible now in your sort of debates and you're talking to people are there are there sections that you're willing to go okay well we can keep this or this is okay but this bit isn't like how do you kind of re re how do you reconcile that sort of idea of this literally false metaphysically true narrative yeah well um all societies have their myths every culture has had <clears throat> their myths and there's some communal value to those myths as you point out and I think generally that's okay, especially if you admit that it's a, a myth. You know, I mean, Santa Claus. I mean, we we told our daughter, you know, we're atheists. We raised our atheist daughter. Uh, we did not want to deny her the, the fun, you know, and the joy of the Santa story. So we told her this, Santa, but wink, wink. We never told her it was true, like the tooth fairy or like Barney the dinosaur or whatever. And she knew from the littlest child that the Santa story wasn't true, but isn't this fun? And so she was not deprived of that whole cultural myth mm. that gave meaning to our lives and in the culture in which we live. We happen to live in, in the United States, where that's an important part of our, our history. So these myths can be very enjoyable and maybe even useful, as long as we're not pretending they're actually true and actually real. So I don't know how many of the Bible stories, though, I would say were actually that useful some of the stuff is just plain wrong um you know incest is useful for good reasons uh the you know the taboo incest taboo is useful for some for good reasons uh, and we know for, for good scientific reasons why and there are some traditions that don't understand the scientific reasons why but they have a religious reason why so you can see where that might be useful in fact i think the incest taboo is so strong you don't even need religion for it because we evolved with with that. So I have Native American ancestry. I'm a member of the uh, Delaware tribe, the Lenape tribe. And we have our myths, but even within the tribe, the myths differ. 
and even among tribes in the United States, the, the myths are are different from each other, and they change over time. Even so, it wasn't any like one solid, you know, like biblical story that we were always following. Yeah, it's really interesting this this idea of myths and and how they, um, I guess, kind of portray certain truths. I know people like Jordan Jordan B. B. Peterson are very big on this idea and do a lot of talking on it. And um, I know a, a lot of ex-believers or people that don't have that or people that have never believed always always tend to push back on this sort of stuff and it's just a really interesting idea that that there might be things in sort of religion not necessarily just christianity but in these sorts of myths or ideas that hold grains of truth that we need to kind of shift out and work out how they can be applied to to us today obviously kind of if you look at um i don't know let's look at some sort of ancient kind of buddhist texts um which have survived for you know thousands and thousands of years these things have stood the test of time okay they might not be necessarily directly applicable today but they teach us a lot about our past i find that a really a really a really helpful way to sort of kind of still have spirituality and and these ideas um but without necessarily literally believing that they are real um how how, how do you kind of keep that sort of spiritual element in your life, Dan, do you do you keep that sort of element alive in any sort of way today? Yeah, but I wouldn't call it spiritual. Okay. Uh, I might call it uh, I might call it something else, aesthetic, or emotional, or cultural, or um, um, as long as we're thinking about it, you know, as long as we're, you know, we we can pretend we can go along with stories as long as we we're not actually pretending they're actually true. I'll give you a story that happened to me just a few years ago when I went to Africa for the first time. I was all excited about visiting Africa, and it was a really an amazing experience. And so I was at the university at Yaoundé with a bunch of secular humanist Africans who were atheists and agnostics. And after the conference, we took a tour over to uh, Gribi, a city on the coast there on the Atlantic coast. <clears throat> and I'd never been to the Atlantic Ocean off the coast of Africa, and I was all excited. And we got there at night. So we got there at night and said, I want to go see the ocean. I want to see the... Atlantic and Africa. So these students took me to the beach, and there it was, but it was nighttime. And so I took off my shoes, and I rolled up my my jeans, and I said, come on, let's go out in the water. And the surf was coming in, and it was really fun, and they just hung back. And I said, come on, you guys, let's get in, let's, get in, let's go wait in the water. And they said, no, no, we can't go. Why not? And they said, mami wata, mami wata, which I later learned is a West African, at least, mythology that there's this woman in the water named Mami Wata uh, who would, if you go into the water at night, she will take the children and pull them out to sea. Wow. So don't go at night. <laughs> and and I turned to those guys and I said, but you guys are rationalists. Atheists. You don't believe that stuff anymore, do you? You don't really? And they said, no, we don't believe it, but we're not going in the water. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, it shows the power of these stories and you can see the reason why, to keep little kids from going out in the water at night. I mean, there's a good reason yeah. for that, right? You can see the value of that myth, even though there is no mummy wata, in the back of these guys' brains, these are adults now, and they, in the back of their brains, they still have this sort of fear of mummy wata, and they laughed. And then one of them, his name was Eric, um, he actually came out with me and waited in the water. So that might have been a big moment, big moment for him in his life. Yeah. <laughs> Oh man, that's so interesting. I think you know, just just reflecting. I think this this idea of hell for me is something that that keep keeps coming back to me time and time again. Like I don't, I don't actually believe hell is real. Um, I've read books like you know um, Bart Diemen released a book um, this year, beginning 
beginning of this year, I think, um, called Heaven and Hell, um, A History of the Afterlife. And he kind of goes through how this idea of hell was essentially created um, and evolved through through scripture um, and then you know, post-scripture back into the kind of the second, third, fourth centuries. Um, and and yet it's still something that, that dominates my thoughts. Um, it's still something that I still I still wake up at night fearing that I'm going to go to hell because I've lost my belief in God. Like it's it's really strange. And then kind of you know morning comes and I have my cup of coffee and I go, why why am I scared of this? Why do I still fear this? Obviously the Christian will go, well that's because God's speaking to you and he's you know telling you that he's real. And you need to fear this idea of hell. But you know when when you look at it, you, you just realize that as as humans we are um, processing machines and and these these stories, these myths, these ideas have have got right into our kind of. Um, our, our brain stems almost and kind of made us kind of um believe things without actually thinking about them and yeah it's just very powerful these sort of metaphors and and motifs i interviewed bart ehrman about that book we have a tv show called free thought matters okay and you can you can watch that uh, interview if you go to youtube and look up ffrf free thought matters um and bart ehrman argues in his book which is kind of interesting that Hell in the Bible was not eternal torment. Hell was basically death. And uh, I pushed back with him, you know, but what about the sheep and the goats, that whole story of the sheep and the goats? Yeah. Uh, and uh, so I'm not sure how many people agree with him, but he makes a strong case that in the Bible, hell was just, you know, the lake of fire, right? Well, what happens when you jump in a lake of fire? You're going to hurt for a while, but then you're dead. His idea was that hell was basically a place of torment, but not eternal torment. You were going to die after that. <clears throat> so um, I'm still trying to process how much of that I think is right, but he makes a strong case in that book that you just mentioned. really interesting scholar i definitely I've, so I've, i follow his blog and re read every post that he, he puts out um have done for for a good year now and um i just just find it interesting that, that so few christians engage with this stuff like um, i know some do there are some christians that do kind of go go along and, and read his stuff but i think a lot of a lot of um especially um evangelical christians in the west almost fear this sort of um critical analytical ex of the Bible and you know these sorts of ancient sorts of Christian writings that might have been you know post post our New Testament gatherings and um, yeah it's, it's just really bizarre like people don't want to have their sacred texts critically examined it's a it's a it's a weird one to me and yet they critically examine them all the time when it comes to other denominations yeah the you know the Calvinists and um, the Armenians and the Pentecostals versus the Lutherans I mean they all have their different like you were saying at the beginning of the show, there may be as many Christianities as there are Christians. They all have the different interpretation of, of their own book, and they don't agree with each other. Even though Paul was very clear in the New Testament, let there be no disagreement among you. You should all think of one mind. Mm. Not the, you know, don't have any arguments. And yet he, felt, he failed to say who was the person we should follow. You know, and they all they all they're all convinced. And I used to be convinced there's something in our brains that's very maybe righteous is the wrong word, uh, uh, overconfident. There's something about 
I know what is the right way to think because I have the right way. To, you know what I mean? There's something in our brains. Yeah. Is it arrogant? Maybe it's not even arrogant. It's just this sort of certainty that we have. And yet everybody has that same certainty. You know, the, the thinkers, the apologists, the scholars, the, the preachers, those, not the people in the pew necessarily. But uh, there's something that I, I had back then. And my, my atheism was really a kind of stepping down. It was kind of a humbling Becoming an atheist made me less certain. It mean, made me less um, confident and righteous and more like, oh my goodness, I could be wrong about this. You mean after millennia of disagreement, I'm the guy? I have the one brain and the one spirit. that I'm the guy who's going to tell everybody else in the world what's the right way to think. There's something in our brains that makes a lot of us just, maybe you can think of the right word for what I'm trying to explain. There's just a certain hardness of thought or or whatever certainty of thought yeah i think i think arrogance is is a really good word like we humans seem to be arrogantly certain or sure of their beliefs and want to propagate those out and kind of go from this position of authority this is what you should i mean that's kind of why you know, catholics love the pope because there's this seat of authority that we can adhere to and it's a, it's a literal person here on earth that hears god um and it was there's almost this worship of this figure um because they they know they are closest to god and i think yeah you you know mentioned kind of atheism as this sort of stepping down for you and i think this is this has been such a big thing for me stepping out of religion is this this idea that you know i i want there to be and i've just you know i need to be honest with myself i i really want there to be um objective moral truths i really want there to be um this this objective thing that we can latch reason onto and actually i i at the place i'm at the moment i don't think that there, there, there are those things you know it's, it's, it seems very clear to me that humans um although we have rational capabilities aren't perfectly rational beings like we we are flawed and we make mistakes and even the way we give money is you know often rationally incorrect in terms of how we actually donate and 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 why we donate and that there's always things that i absolutely desire and crave to be objectively true um but actually kind of stepping away from religion i have to go well i can't have these firm almost like coat hooks that i hang my hats upon um i have to go well actually these things go to this level they don't go to this level which i once thought they did but this halfway point has has to be enough because there is no way further and it is, it is that is that reconciliation within your own heart and mind of these things and, and that takes work and time um i don't know i kind of i kind of very often kind of kind of come across Christians um, and Daniel you're probably very very um, familiar with these sorts of people who just enjoy sitting within echo chambers where they're just getting their own doubts and disbeliefs kind of fed back to them through you know posts on Instagram or tweets or whatever um, and, and very rarely go away and and engage with the other sides to to recognize um, this certainty that, that they might have and what it would be like to live like that do you, this is where I am at with it I kind of would love your thoughts on this do you think people like that are desiring their record chambers because they want comfort or or they're desiring their record chambers because they are certain that the position they're in is correct i i, I just find it really strange because for me i i want to understand each camp and i want to understand what it's like to sit within that and then i want to go away and go well this for me seems to be the most logical explanation which is obviously a non-religious one but what, what what are your thoughts on sort of echo chambers and people's desires to sit within them well Part of it, I think, is the fact that one of the hardest things in the world to say is, I was wrong. We want to be right. And if we admit that we're wrong about anything, this is especially troublesome for fundamentalists, if they admit there's a contradiction in the Bible or that there's a mistake in the Bible. 
uh, if I'm wrong about this, then what else? They don't. Then the rock is pulled out from under them. They built their house on the sand. They want to have, like you say, the certainty of objective truths. And I, I think I kind of agree with you, except for mathematical and logical, you know, statements. There are no objective truths, and it shouldn't bother us that there are not. But I do think there are principles. I think there are objective, objectively justified principles. For example, the principle of uh, avoiding and minimizing harm, however that translates in the real world, there's a principle that you can, in a sense, hang your hat on, yeah. right? Yeah. You wouldn't say, I, I would like, to, I think creating more harm is better than less. I mean, there are principles in life that we can, it's, it's like a compass. A compass doesn't tell you where to go. Uh, a compass just tells you where you are. You have to still decide where to go. And I think there are moral compasses that help us navigate the terrain that don't necessarily dictate to us, here's what thou must do. But the compass points us. It tells us where north is. If if north is less harm, then let's head north. However we're going to get there, I don't know. And sometimes to go north, you have to go east or west for a while because of the obstacles. Sometimes you even have to go south for a while if you want to go north. Sometimes it's not just simple answers in, in the real world. So... Um, uh, I lost my train of thought there. You had another question you were, or comment you were making. Yeah, it was kind of about this idea of um, echo chambers and whether there's this, there's this desire for certainty to be um, the thing that kind of pins us to where we are so that we don't ever have to. I mean, I, I, I often think it's down to comfort, right? I think it's down to this idea that we might not actually know we're certain, but we can at least put the blinders on, pretend we're certain, and then just sit comfortably in this sort of little camp that we have. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, and I remember it was so painful for me to admit that I was wrong. I mean, it's like, it's like, uh, it's almost like a feeling of, I don't believe in this anymore, but it's almost like a feeling of sin, something corrupt and degrading in you if you have to admit that you made a mistake. Um, and, and I think maybe that's one of the mistakes that a lot of us critics make when we talk with believers is that we try to hit them hard with the mistake. You're, you're wrong, you're, and we ridicule them. There's, you know, ridicule's okay, as long as that's not all we do, but hmm. uh, that's not going to have much traction. They're just going to dig in deeper. They're not going to want to admit that. The, you know, if we, we can go up and scream at them, say, you're wrong, this is wrong, this is, this is irrational, this is illogical. Um, I even know atheists who have that mindset. I hear from atheists who have watched one of my debates, for example, um, and one guy told me, oh, I really liked your debate. I really liked, I watched the whole thing. And he said, well, I didn't watch the whole thing. I just fast forwarded through the other guy's stuff. I just wanted to hear what you said. So you see that same thing. They don't want to spend the time to actually understand what the other side is saying. They just want to get the goodies. You know, they just want to get the arguments that they can use. Yeah. And uh, if you are going to debate with somebody, you need to know. You can't just set up a straw argument. You have to set up what we call a steel a steel man argument. To actually, a, a steel man argument is where where I express to you what you believe, and then you come back and say, "Yes, you got that right." So that now we know we are at least talking with each other. I know what you're thinking because it's so easy not to understand what the other person is thinking. So some atheists are guilty of that. And of course, a lot of believers really don't want to know what the atheists think. They just want to preach at us. They just want to, they don't want to listen. 
I don't know how many conversations you've been in mm. where you're talking with somebody. They, they really, really don't want to listen and learn because how can they learn from somebody who's depraved and, and going to hell? Yeah. They really they really want to preach at us and set us straight. When if they really desire a, an honest, kind, two-way conversation, we should both try the, our best to understand what the other person is saying and thinking. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I guess kind of vaguely touching on that subject, um, I, I always find it really interesting to ask people, um, depending on which side of the fence they're sitting, I have Christians and non-Christians on this podcast, um, kind of what what is it, um, or what would you say within Christianity, Dan, is the the best argument or the thing that might get you interested again? Obviously, I'm not saying you would ever be interested in it again, but what is it about Christianity that makes you kind of sit up the most um, and go, okay, well, what, what does that mean? Um, and kind of want to want to look into it more. Well, I don't know what it is that would, right, at this point, I mean, it, is there an argument that could be made? I um, guess, I guess maybe sitting on the other side and being happy there, um, for you, when you look at Christianity now, what is the argument you think is the most interesting that Christians make for why God is real? Their best intellectual argument is the design argument. Okay. And, and even Antony Flew, you yeah. know, toward the end of his life as a lifelong atheist, he didn't become a theist, but he did back off a little bit and say, wait a minute, we don't really have an answer for the, the initial constants, the values of the initial constants and the way it could have been. Therefore, we should leave room. He became a little more agnostic, although a lot of Christians are trying to claim that he converted to to God because of that. Yeah. And so in in his mind, however, the part of the design argument was somewhat persuasive to him to make him back off of his hard atheism. I think rhetorically, love, you know, we want a community of love and Jesus is love and God is love and we Christians can all come together and love each other. I think that's very attractive to people. So um, although as an atheist, I can say and most atheists I know would say, we don't lack for love in our lives. Our lives have plenty of fellowship and, and caring and giving and morality and meaning and purpose. I have a book called Life Driven Purpose, which is all about purpose in life. And you probably get the joke of that title because of Rick Warren's famous book, The Purpose Driven Life. So I'm, I'm turning it upside down. We have life driven purpose. Uh, so yeah, we can all... we. Most atheists I know are pretty happy. They're not tormented by hell anymore or the fear of judgment. And they're not sending 10% of their income to some church to help pay the bills of these pedophile priests. You know? <laughs> they they're, uh, actually have more free time. And basically, they got a 10% raise, which is kind of nice. Yeah. So, um, so I guess I don't know how I would answer that. What, what would make me come back? I guess it's intellectual. What would make me come back is intellectual. If... And I do this in debate sometimes. If a, if a believer were to tell me that they spoke with God and God told them that tomorrow at 12.03 p.m., a meteorite from the south-southwest at an angle of 87 degrees would strike my house, go right through the Navajo rug and end up 6.3 inches below the basement floor, a meteorite composed of uh, 84% iron and 2% iridium and so on. And if that happened, as th their God told them what happened, then that would cause me to seriously reconsider. You know, I mean, things like that. I could come up with, and you could probably come up with a bunch of 
And the Bible even says, all things whatsoever ye shall ask in prayer, you shall receive. The Bible says that. It doesn't say maybe. It says you will receive it. There's at least eight or nine clear New Testament Bible verses that promise to answer prayer. Not with maybe, not with not with no, but that actually your prayers will be answered. So if somebody would do that, if somebody would actually show that the Bible is telling the truth and follow it, then... Um, yeah, that would cause me to reconsider. It might not cause me to worship. Yeah. That's a different question. Yeah. But it might cause me to believe. You can believe without worshiping. In fact, the Bible even says the, the, the demons, the devils believe. They just don't worship this God. So, um, you know, we could come up with another couple dozen hypotheticals that would cause us to change our mind. Because I want to know what's true. We atheists are not stupid and we don't have our head in the sand thinking nope i'm not going to believe i'm not going to believe nope don't talk to me if it's true we want to know it and if there's a god that's something knowable i would like to know that i don't want to be dumb and left out of some some truth so let's let's have at it if you've got some evidence and you've got some good reasons uh then let's hear them that's really helpful i mean i don't i don't believe in the classical sense of um libertarian free will like i used to um but i i Obviously, I think if God was real, um, and He says that He does this, that He that He writes His name on on everyone's heart, um, I think He could literally write His name on our hearts. We we know for complete certainty He's real, and also give us complete libertarian free will to then choose or reject Him. I think that that is a possible situation that God could have brought about, but we don't yeah. see that, and that. And that, for me, is is the big crux situation. I'm going to be asking questions and trying to understand this sort of religious um, framework that we've built um, the, the the West from, which I I think is the kind of Christian framework. Um, um, I know a lot of people push push back and say, and that's absolutely fine. That's just where my head's at at the moment. Um, and I kind of going to going to ask questions. I'm going to be searching, seeking, and trying to work out, you know what would it be that would convince me that God is real? And then look at that and go, well, you know, is, is it there? No, I can't find it there. Okay, then, and, and begin to kind of work my way through that. Because, you know, asking these questions to people, I think is really helpful because if you, if, if you don't know where the goalposts are, how are you meant to actually be able to get that sort of, uh, for you, I guess it would be touchdown for me, that goal. Um, so kind of how, how, how are you meant to actually be able to, to look and go, well, this is what I need to be correct evidence. And someone like, you know, for instance, um, uh, Peter Singer, for instance, or somebody like that would probably say that there isn't anything that would convince them that God's real, even if they saw this sort of alien um, come down and go, Jesus Christ literally came to our planet as well, um, was born, died and rose again. You know, we, we, we follow Christianity, you should do the same. Um, you know, that would still, for, for him and for others, be the sort of like um, hallucination within their brain and they, they still wouldn't believe it's necessarily true. Um, you know, I think you know, potentially that's too far. I just don't know because it's it, it, it's so hard to, to work out what would convince us. But at the same time, if God is real, it, it's not hard for God to work out what can convince us. So surely he'd be able to kind of, yeah, sort that out and let us actually know what the heck is going on. You and I were raised with these Christian, whatever you want to call it, paradigm or culture. Mm. And so we kind of can't help asking these questions. Yeah. And Muslim who has escaped Islam would be asking similar but not the same kind of questions. Uh, somebody over in uh, New Delhi or in Mumbai would be asking similar but not the same questions. And 
you and I have no problem dismissing, telling somebody in Mumbai, hey, you're wasting your time struggling with those Shiva and Vishnu. You're wasting your time. Well, then aren't we also wasting our time? I mean, why, why in the heck are we even bothering to worry about these things except that they were planted into our minds? I think the idea of true and false is kind of overly simplistic. I think if I were presented with evidence, um, like I just mentioned, the meteorite. Yeah. What that does is scientific truths and historical truths are not, are not binary. They're a matter of probability. And I think a lot of scientists will say, well, we need a 97 or 99% confidence rate before we will round it off. We're still admitting some possibility uh, or probability that we're wrong. But when it gets to a certain level, uh, like the existence of, the existence of uh, leprechauns, for example, across the water from you, you can't prove there were no leprechauns or that there aren't now. But I bet you your level of confidence in the existence of leprechauns is probably zero point zero 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 five six or something like that yeah it's low but it's not zero right because it could be we don't know i mean have you looked under every rock in ireland no Sadly you not. haven't right yeah. and there's there's stories about leprechauns there's pictures of leprechauns right there's a culture of leprechauns uh have you ever eaten a box of lucky charm cereal there's a leprechaun on the front <laughs> of the cereal box i mean there's so obviously there's evidence for leprechauns and so we can't say it's zero but it's it's so low that I think it's reasonable for us to round it off. And this evidence, uh, I think what Peter Singer would say, what I would say to P Peter Singer is that I wouldn't flip yes or no. What I would do is say, well, my, my probability is at this level, this new information raises or lowers the probability somewhat is what it does. So maybe this new information would make it more likely that there's a God. doesn't mean I'm going to jump all the way to 1.0. But I would have to admit, and if we're honest, data like that should affect our assessment of probability one way or another. And uh, when it comes to the Bible, when it comes, for example, to the historicity of Jesus, Bart Ehrman thinks it's greater than 0.5. Bart Ehrman thinks the actual historical Jesus is, is probable. I don't know where he would put it, 0.6, 0.7, I don't know where, but it's greater, it's 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 higher than half that he would round it up. I happen to think it's lower than 0.5. Maybe it's 0 0.4, 0 0.3, 0 0.2, somewhere in there. Although I bet you our positions are pretty close. If, if we're going to have to be forced to round it off on a binary yes or no kind of a thing, one of us would go one way and the other would go <clears throat> the other way. <clears throat> when the honest thing to say is, well, I'm not sure, but I'm less sure than I was before. Or I am, or I am more sure than I was before, based on this new data. That's a really good way of looking at it. Yeah, and this is this is. I mean, this is a really interesting fact of life, isn't it? That we can be both of us can be presented. We can watch the same ad on TV, for instance, or we can be presented with the same data, and how we interpret that and what that makes us do and feel will be potentially completely different. Um, you know, I might watch an, an advertisement on TV and be, you know, completely and utterly turned off this thing that they're asking me to go buy. Whereas, you know, my wife, for instance, might go like, well, we need to get one of those tomorrow. That That's the best thing since sliced bread. Like it's this weird, this weird di dichotomy that as humans, we, we, we don't, we don't obtain the same rational um, presuppositions that the other person does. We just, we just don't work like that, um, which is, which is challenging um, for sure. Um, okay. I'm, I'm 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 aware I'm taking up a lot of your time. I've just got kind of two more questions. If that's all right with you, Dan? Yeah, that's fine. This is fun, actually. Oh, good. I'm I'm really enjoying it. Um, 
so the first one is essentially kind of if you were to write to yourself when you were uh, when you were very young, you first began to kind of believe Christianity and aware that you're kind of raised and born in this sort of stuff. Um, what would you be trying to tell yourself? Maybe as you were beginning to ask these questions, beginning to doubt, like what what would be the thing you'd be saying to yourself now? But there, I ask because there are lots of listeners to this podcast who are either going through or starting on this sort of deconversion journey, uh, stepping away from a belief system of some kind into usually a non-religious belief system. So, what what would be the sorts of things you would have said to yourself? Because maybe that will spark something for someone else. Well, besides trying to encourage my younger self to think for himself rather than let other people think for him, which is a tough thing to do when you're young or when you're so wedded to your faith that you, you really respect the authorities in your faith. Um, I would point out that there are all these experts and scholars. You don't know everything because you're young and you're still learning. And there's these seminaries and there's these, there's a body of Christian literature and there's this, all this history, all these experts but you don't have to be an expert to recognize that all the experts disagree with each other. So it's not a matter of finding expert help or scholarly help. It's a matter of deciding which expert you're going to go to. And who's going to make that decision? Your mm -hmm. parents? Your pastor? Are you going to let them make that decision for you? Are you going to make that decision for yourself about how you're going to think and compare? Most of us, when we're born and raised in a religion, uh, haven't done a comprehensive analysis of all of the options that are available to us. We, we kind of pretty much go with the flow of the culture that we're in. We pretty much go with, in my case, it was a Bible-believing, fundamentalist-type Christian culture, which I loved, by the way. I thought it was great. Uh, I didn't see any reason why, and I, I admired the pastors and my relatives who are all teaching me this stuff. So uh, there was no real motivation for me to even want to think outside of that box. <clears throat> so I mean, I think that would be one of the first things is think for yourself. And then when you read the Bible, uh, if you need an expert or a scholar to tell you what it really means, if that's what you need, then God did a poor job. God is inept. When you open the Bible in a hotel room, open a drawer in a hotel room, you find this Bible there. There's no expert or scholar sitting next to it to tell you, by the way, when you read this, let me explain to you, here's what it really means. So God supposedly gave me, I'm part of the human race, he supposedly gave me this all-important message. It's for me and my soul and my eternal destiny and my happiness and all of that. <clears throat> he, so, he gave this book to me, but I'm not capable of understanding unless somebody else out there comes along and tells me, by the way, Psalm 137.9 doesn't mean we should be happy to dash babies against the rocks. That was hyperbole, right? <clears throat> it doesn't say that in the book anywhere. Uh, it doesn't tell me anywhere where to draw the line between what's metaphor and what isn't. So then it just becomes a matter of, well, then which expert do you pick? Because different Christian experts are going to have different interpretations of the same book. In fact, in history, they've killed each other for their differences. Yep. They've, <clears throat> the Thirty Years' War, to some degree, to a large degree, was started over confessional differences, over things like infant baptism or, uh, or transubstantiation, things that you and I would think are stupid Stupid things to kill people over, but they were. People were actually killed. There were violent wars fought over these different interpretations of the same holy book. Hmm. So um, um, I guess I would have told my earlier self, take a little credit for your own intelligence. 
Take a little credit for your own ability to think and reason. You're not stupid. You've got a brain. You can read. You can think about this. And don't be a victim of somebody else's thinking. Maybe they're right. Maybe, maybe your pastor is right. But you're not going to know it just because your pastor says it. You need to do your own thinking. Beautifully said. Absolutely beautifully said. Um, okay, and, and just to kind of um, help help the listener to have kind of more resources and, and places to go, Dan. So, I mean, I think you've written 10, if not close to 10 books. How, how many books have you written now? So I'm working on number 11, but it depends how you count them. <clears throat> There's um, three children's books. And then I also had some, what you would call books, Christian musical books that were printed. Okay. But if you're talking about if you're talking about since then, it's been ten, and I'm working on the eleventh now. Wow! So if people wanted to pick up one of these books, Dan, and kind of work through it, what 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 would be kind of your your recommendations for starting off with your work? Well, the uh, the book that tells my story, I think, is called Godless. Would be, um, and I mentioned that earlier, where Richard Dawkins wrote the foreword. You wouldn't want to sit on the bus next next to Dan on a bus. Uh, that the first half of the book tells my story. And a lot of people have told me that they can relate because, yes, they they felt that way, too. And for the most part, I'm pretty charitable and courteous to believers because I was one. I wasn't stupid. I, you know, I believed those things, but I wasn't a dumb guy, and I, I thought it was real and important. The second half of the book is then some reasoning and argument and Bible criticism and some, some basic uh, uh, ammunition, if you will, uh, for how to think and how to debate with believers. That's super helpful. And for anyone wanting to reach out to you, what, what's the best way to kind of get hold uh, of you or follow you on social media? Well, uh, I guess the best way is to just look up the Freedom From Religion Foundation. And there's contact information there. And it's a fun webpage to look through. Anyway, we've got a lot of resources. We're expanding our Spanish language, by the way, uh, on that page. Nice. So, and you can find me and find my bio you can listen to a number of the songs I wrote, and you can look at a number of the debates, too. <clears throat> Not all 137 of them are were recorded. <laughs> uh, so go to, it's FFRF, that's for Freedom From Religion Foundation, FFRF.org. Amazing. Dan, it's been so good having you on the show today. Thank you for coming. Well, thank you, Sam. It's been a real pleasure to talk with you. there we go and i hope you enjoyed that episode this is just to say that you can find links to us on social media patreon or the blog directly below we would absolutely love to hear from you as your comments and suggestions help to drive this podcast forwards so please reach out and until next time this is sam signing off for when belief dies Mm -hmm.